0: Download the Instacart app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply.
1: KMOX and your service. Welcome to the St. Louis Composting Garden Hotline. Now Mike Miller on KMOX.
2: Yes, folks, welcome and thanks for stopping by. We'll be taking a good gardening stroll shortly, but before Mr. Kelly gets out of here, you always dress so fashionably here on Saturday and everything. Always. Else. And I was just curious, since you live in a real rural environment, mm-hmm. do you have bib overalls that you wear? At no, home?
3: no. Oh. I do have uh, a camo bodysuit. You know, one of those winter heavy duty things. You know, you go out in the cold and right. Just go out in the cold. I just thought yeah.
2: you looked perfect in bib overalls. Uh,
3: you know, Isn't that's you? a good idea. I'll have to get some. Right. Yeah, when I go work on my tractor. <laughs>
2: <laughs> or patch your horses that you don't have. <laughs> well, and my neighbor's horse. Neighbor, well, oh, that's went true. by the,
3: by the way, went by AB the other day for the Christmas stuff, you know, the lights, mm-hmm. and saw the uh, Clydesdales. Oh, my goodness. What beautiful animals they you are. You aren't kidding. Yeah. For a
2: while, Huge. I mean, a lot of the snooks had them outside the stores. Mm hmm. Just a single one. So, yeah. So you could kind of. Get your picture taken with it and everything else. So I
3: I should have had my bib overalls and get out the pitchfork and be pitching the hay. (laughs) Yeehaw!
2: I just thought since you were such a cool fashion guy during your work hours, that when you're not working, overalls.
3: Bib overalls. Right. That's it. With
2: pins stuck in them.
3: Yeah. Exactly.
2: (laughs) (laughs) All right. Thanks. Yes, and thanks to you for stopping by. We'll be taking a good gardening stroll shortly. If you have any questions, concerns, or comments, 314-436-7900 or 1-800-925-1120. On Saturday mornings, we get together and we have a roundtable discussion about what's impacting your backyard, what's going on in the front yard, what's over there, what's on that side yard, how about that specialty garden space that kind of let you down this year, the taste of the tropics, how are your house plants doing, And what is potting mix? How to improve your soil? Should you be doing pruning and shearing? How to get rid of those bugs and diseases. And using information to make good decisions. My thoughts and orchestrations hopefully will open and solidify your options with the final judgment obviously going to be on your shoulders. And by the way, this is your show, and I appreciate you inviting me into your home, your car, or wherever you happen to be listening. Another very important player is Cole. He's producing today. Normally, Alex is doing the productions, but he and his wife, Emily, are celebrating their fifth anniversary today, so he is off. But Cole will be glad to take your name and where you're calling from, And uh, so give a call, 314-436-7900 or 1-800-925-1120. I'm Mike Miller. I've been hosting the Garden Hotline since 1994. And uh, I can come to your home and do a landscape consultation, which I call a walk and talk. And uh, you can go to my website, MikeMillerDesigns.com. On the homepage, there's my email address and phone number where I can be reached. I've written five gardening books, worked at the Botanical Gardens, taught at the Community College at Merrimack, taught at the Botanical Garden as well, and uh, just totally enjoy the outdoors. Speaking of which, as I look out the windows here at KMOX, we look kind of to the south of us, is the uh, Soldiers Memorial. And straight ahead is a park space, which I don't think the park actually has a name. But, man, every one of the trees is still full of leaves. Now, they're brown, but it's really kind of been incredible that the amount of leaves on the trees are hanging on to this year is just fantastic. Oh, and by the way, the Good Gardening Stroll is brought to you by St. Louis Composting, 636-861-3344. When I start off... When I leave home, I never really know where I'm going. Sometimes, Well, I shouldn't say never, but a lot of times I don't. So I just kind of was driving around thinking, hmm, I wonder where I should go. And then all of a sudden, I went down Market Street, and where Market Street and 7th and Broadway, that intersection there, whoa, it's the annual Ameren Festival of Lights Winterfest. It's from on Fridays from... 4 to 8, and on weekends from 12 to 8, noon to 8 o'clock. And November 23rd, that's the opening. And it's the Gateway Arch Park Foundation. And as you step in, you're, there's an area enclosed by a white fence with garland on it. It looks very nice. Then inside that fence is five miniature climatrons where you can rent and then go sit, and I'm assuming eat. I don't know if they serve drinks in there or not, but that could be really a cool thing to do if it was snowing or even raining. But you you just look around all over the place, and the skyline, the arch, the old courthouse, all the office buildings and everything else, it is just a fantastic view. Besides all the plant material, this is where Keener Plaza used to be. So there's hollies and oakleaf hydrangeas. And bald cypress are among other things, other plant materials that are in their winter mode. And as I said before, the spectacular skyline is just fantastic. Then I walk down a little bit further, and there's a miniature arch. And that's sort of like where a stage is. So I guess they have musical musical groups or who knows, productions. I don't know what's going to go on the stage. Then just a little bit further down... Towards the old courthouse is the Salvation Army Tree of Lights. And then uh, the Running Man statue is there, but that's back in the other direction. There's an ice skating rink, a tented restaurant, the Winter Market. And this is all brought or organized, I guess, by ChristmasInStLouis.org. And though it was raining, not real hard, but it was raining hard enough, but it didn't prevent the crows, I don't know where they go every day, But they fly over our neighborhood, and they were flying someplace in this direction. They weren't actually. I can never really see. I can see them at home, but I can't see them when I'm downtown. So, where are they heading? I don't know. Also, there was a couple male and couple female cardinals that were checking out all the festivities, and wow, what a fun place this could possibly be! So, it's where Keener Plaza used to be, and there is so much potential activity there. It is unbelievable. So. That's the good gardening stroll for today. So, 314-436-7900 or 1-800-925-1120 with your questions, comments, or concerns.
1: Welcome back to the St. Louis Composting Garden Hotline. Once again, Mike Miller on KMOX.
2: you do have any questions or concerns about your landscape, 314 436-7900 or 1-800-925-1120. He just needs your name and where you're calling from. And our first caller is going to be Richard. Hi, Richard. How are you? Hello, Richard. Are you there? Oops. I guess not. <clears throat> oh, well. <laughs> Let's go to Sally. And she lives in Corps. Hi, Sally. Hi, good morning. morning. Um, I have
4: a question about deep root feeding um, of trees, and I have – the first question is, what do you feel about it, or how do you feel about it? The second is, when is the best time to do it? And the third is, what are the numbers on the fertilizer that should be used?
2: uh, I didn't understand the first part of your question. Fertilizing trees?
4: Yes, fertilizing trees, deep root feeding.
2: Deep root feeding is compost. So basically what you're doing is you're getting an electric drill or have somebody with an electric drill, you know, battery-powered or, you know, with a cord, and you come out halfway from the trunk to the drip line of the branches, and you do a series of holes going all the way around the tree. And those holes are about six inches deep, and they're about one to two feet apart, and then you go do another series of holes in a circle – another two feet out further towards the drip line. Then you go slightly beyond the drip line. And you just backfill those holes with compost, not with fertilizer whatsoever. The compost then feeds your soil, and then what happens is your soil is richer, better, healthier, and then that feeds your trees.
4: So you uh, don't—all these tree people uh, talk about injecting a liquid fertilizer—
2: Right. I don't. To me, if you're if you have healthy soil, you don't need to inject anything into your tree from a fertilizer standpoint. That's my perspective. There's lots of different ways to go about doing things. But that's I started, you know, that whole philosophy started with me when I worked at the Botanical Garden and we were deep root feeding the trees in the English Woodland Garden where I worked. And I just saw I, you know. That's not necessarily going to guarantee a tree won't die or a tree is going to always have a huge amount of flowers or whatever it happens to be. But healthy soil is by far much better than, you know, just kind of feeding the tree per se. Because if you can feed the tree, but if the soil is not healthy, it's not going to make a darn bit of difference. And when is the best time to do that? Basically, any time during the winter. So any time when the foliage has already started to turn color, so in other words, from the, let's say, fall color to the brown as it is now, all the way up until the point, really, until the new growth begins in the springtime. And then I with see. the evergreens, it's when you start to see some of the interior needles starting to turn brown. That means it's headed towards a dormant cycle. And then you're just doing it then. It doesn't really matter all that much. It's just easier to do it in the wintertime because there's less outdoor activities that you need to do for your landscape. I see. All right, Mike. Thanks so much. Certainly. And now let's go back and is Richard. Oh, Let's go back to Richard. He's in Melville. Hi, Richard.
5: Hi, Mike. How you doing? Very good. Hey, I have a tree. Uh, it's a magnolia tree. I planted it in October. It's a bracken brown. It's, Six or, about seven or eight feet tall, mm-hmm. um, the leaves are starting to turn a little yellow, and I'm wondering if that should be a concern for me. Um, uh, Mr. Internet tells me conflicting information <laughs> might be too much water, might be too little, you know, so what do you think?
2: I probably think, first of all, hopefully you dug the hole three times the diameter of the root ball and only 80% as deep, so that's the crucial thing. That's That okay. won't make that much difference during the first couple of years but that will enable the root systems to migrate out, migrate out laterally and that's where all the feeder roots are roots that go deeper you know really all they do is keep the tree from falling over so if you mm-hmm. know something that's been planted only like in October so that was last month right if it's just coloring you know at this point i would say it's just more or less shock of going in from a nursery circumstance where you bought it to your landscape And the Mm -hmm. Brackens Brown Beauty, I know, is is one of the evergreen-type magnolias. So there's really not a whole lot you can do. Even if you put, normally with evergreens, you want to put, usually that kind of indicates when the foliage starts turning yellow, that the soil pH is not acidic enough and that Mm -hmm. there's probably an iron deficiency. But when a tree has only been in the ground for a month or so, it doesn't even have a root system to uptake any kind of, You know, sulfur, it doesn't have any root system to take up any kind of anything for the most part. It's just really kind of acclimating to its new environment. So I Mm -hmm. would say just leave it alone for right now. And maybe next spring, you know, at that time or let's say sometime April, May, you know, take a look at it and see if the discoloration is probably not going to improve. But you might be able to put some nutrients like iron sulfate or something like that and see if that will give it some help.
5: Okay, is there some sort of a test kit or something I can do on the soil to determine exactly what I need to put in?
2: Yeah, uh, te- you know, those home test kit things are pretty much useless. So you really <laughs> okay. need to go and, like, take a soil sample, and uh, you live in Melville, but in Kirkwood, the University of Missouri Extension Service has an office there, and you just drop off the soil sample and then let the, let the professionals do the soil sample rather than you just trying to guess from some, some kind of graph with a color.
5: Okay. All right. Sounds good, Mike. I appreciate the
2: help. Certainly. I'm glad uh, you, you know, we saw we missed you at the first uh, calling. And now let's go to Swansea, Illinois, and see what's going on with Scott. Hi, Scott.
6: Hi, Mike. Thanks for having me on your show. Sure. I have a question on uh, mulching of leaves. I've got a silver maple in my backyard that drops the leaves uh, fairly quickly, and then I back them up with my uh, mulching lawnmower and I put them on my vegetable garden. My neighbor now, he has a oak tree that's dropping its leaves now, and my uh, lawnmower doesn't shred those up as finely. And I was wondering, is one better than the other for to put on vegetable garden, or should I not put any of them on until...
2: I would say you really shouldn't put any of them on the ground unless you're going to work them right into the ground immediately. But just to lay them on top really doesn't do all that much good. There's no real advantage to it. The best thing to do is to get a composting barrel or have a composting pile and put your leaves, his leaves, you know, in the compost pile and then mix some fertilizer, you know, basically in with the leaves so you can start the, you know, the breakdown process. But just to okay. sort of chop them up and throw them on top of something, that can actually cause some a little bit of problems. So just you have to understand that that may be the case. And it's just a okay. matter of, I mean, there's been studies and tests and everything else that uh, it's, you know, the leaves just laying on top of the ground can actually cause some, you know, a little bit of problems. from Even though you're not growing anything in that garden space right now, it can bind up some nutrients and cause some problems in the future. So just to throw stuff on top of the ground that hasn't been properly composted is not something you really want to do.
6: Okay. And does the oak leaf have different nutrients than the maple leaf, or once they're, you know, dead, they're about the same nutrient value to
7: the ground? Yeah,
2: they're probably – I mean, the oak leaf is thicker, it's waxier, it takes a longer time to break down, but uh, it's – Just, you know, they're they're going to end up being the same thing. So, in other words, like St. Louis composting, they don't sort of separate maple leaves from oak leaves, from sumac leaves, from sycamore leaves, from, uh, you know, any other kind of leaves. It's just all the leaves are worked together. But here's, you know, something about, you know, overall leaf mulch, uncomposted, just mowed, allowed to lay in place, can compete with your lawn and can compete with the plant materials and even in your garden space. So it's just... You know, it's it's just not good overall to just lay them on top of the garden ground. Okay. All right. Well, thank you very much. Certainly. My pleasure. And if anybody else has any questions, 314-436-7900 or 1-800-925-1120. Thanks, Scott, for having me on your show. And now let's go to uh, Bill, and he's in Centralia. Hi, Bill.
8: Hi, Mike. Happy Thanksgiving to you and yours.
2: Well, thank you. Same to you. <laughs>
8: Uh, I'm glad that the, the guy, man brought up about the leaves. I have plenty of leaves, but I was wondering if it would benefit my my uh, rows, uh, my two rows of pines, if I put them in there and just let them lay on top of the weeds.
2: No, you really. Again, you, you're just better off to you know to actually compost. To, to have okay. a you know a space just set off where you can have a compost pile or something like that. You might as well, if you're going to do it, you might as well do it totally correctly rather than halfway correctly.
8: Okay. And then uh, my grapes need to have, be mulched, right?
2: Um, this is their first year. Oh, so. no, definitely their first year. They definitely have to be mulched. Okay. But uh, generally they don't need, once they get much, you know, let's say at the five-year mark or something, uh-huh. when they have a well-established root system, you probably do not have to mulch them. And I'm just saying that from the standpoint of, you know, if you go to California, obviously, where a lot of the grapes for vineyards and things like that are grown, you don't see nothing gets mulched there. And even just driving through the areas where wineries are here, I don't see the, you know, the vineyards really having mulch on top or over the root system of the grapes. If they're healthy, I think they should be fine. And uh, if you if you're a little bit concerned from an aesthetic standpoint, two to three or four inches of mulch won't hurt, but just make sure that it's you know composted mulch as opposed to just let's say raw mulch from let's say leaves or yeah. chips from wood or something along that line.
8: Well, it's it, it'll ne- they'll never do like that. My neighbor gave me a Concord grape that was probably ten or fifteen years old. And I had it for thirty some years old. So
2: really, uh,
8: yeah. It, it was an unbelievable plant, but I had to leave it. But it, So I, I never composted it, I can tell you that. Or,
2: right. Or you never mulched it?
8: Or mulched it. Well, I composted, but I never mulched it. Yet. Right. Okay. Thank you very much, Mike, for all your information. Well,
2: thanks, and thanks for having me on your show. Greatly appreciate it. Now let's head from Centroia over to St. Charles and go into Doug's yard. Hi, Doug.
9: Yes, uh, several questions. We have a burning bush too late in the year to trim that, and we have a Rosa Sharon, too late in the year to
2: trim those. Basically not. You. I mean, you can do it. You don't have to do it now. The burning bush is already, you know, they're tough, they're durable, and you're growing them for the fall color. I'm sure probably most of the fall color is finished on it, so you can prune them. Or you can just wait until we come out of wintertime and then prune them in the early, late winter, early spring. And the same with the Rose of Sharon. You know, it's a summer bloomer, so you can prune it anytime from this point forward all the way up until the new growth begins in the spring.
9: Okay, my other question was, and this is going to sound a little loony, I have a lot of uh, the wild honeysuckle trees growing up along the fence line, and what I'm thinking of doing rather than cutting the branches back and dabbing each one with uh uh, roundup or something like that. I've thought about just going down closer to the base and drilling holes in, and just injecting that stuff into the base of the trunk. Do you think that would work?
2: I, I'm not really sure. I've never really heard of that philosophy or anything. Usually, the you know the roundup needs to be you know. But, like, many times I recommend people with honeysuckle just cutting the trunk at a 45-degree angle about two feet off the ground and just taking the roundup and painting it directly on to where you've made the cut. In other words, the stump or the trunk that's, you know, remaining after you've cut off the top. I would just—the only thing I'd be concerned with, if you're going to drill holes in it and try this, you know, do them at a 45-degree angle. So when you, let's say, pour a little roundup down in the hole— that it actually is just not going to come running back out. If it comes running back out and it's not sort of in, you know absorbed into the vascular system then that you know that would be kind of a waste of time. And well, the, of the, the true is, you know veins yeah. of all plant material, especially woody plant material, they're really just on the very inside of where the bark is. And if you're drilling past where the bark is, you're getting into the heartwood, even on honeysuckle. And that is probably having the Roundup end up down in the heartwood, I don't know if that's gonna do any good. The reason why you put Roundup on the foliage or you paint it along you know around the perimeter is that's where you know on the foliage it gets absorbed into the, you know, let's say the vascular system of the tree or the honeysuckle or whatever it happens to be and you know works from that standpoint. Or if you've cut off the whole trunk and you just paint the let's say the perimeter, the caliper or the the edge of the the plant, then it's much easier to do. So you give it a try and see what you think, and you call me back and let me know.
9: Part of the problem on this is I have a neighbor who cuts his grass once a month, whether it needs it or not, and (laughs) these are growing right at the fence line into my yard. Ooh. And it doesn't seem to bother him. So that's why I was thinking of doing it the other
2: way. (laughs) (laughs) Well, sure, why not? Give it a try.
10: (laughs) Okay, thank you.
2: Bye-bye. (laughs) Mike Miller, KMLX Garden Hotline If you have any questions, concerns, or comments 314-436-7900 Or 1-800-925-1120 Folks, 314-436-7900 Or 1-800-925-1120 With questions, concerns, or comments And let's see, where do we want to go? How about over to Patrick's house And he lives in Florissant Hi Patrick
11: Hey, Mike. Hi. Good morning. Hey, uh, I have been battling and losing for the past six or seven years with wild violets. How the heck do I kill them?
2: Thanks. <laughs> the best thing you can do is sell your house and go someplace where. No, they're really brutal. I mean, there's no getting around it. I mean, they're probably the, one of the worst, if not the worst, weed that we have. So it's just uh, you know what I've you know found to be most effective. Is spot treatment with Roundup just as soon as I see the foliage? Now I know that creates, and now Roundup is coming out with kind of a cone at the end of the sprayer, so it only, you know, it only shoots the Roundups directly down to where you want it to go, and it won't drift and cause any damage to anything else around it. But they are, it's going to be a long, very involved process to finally get rid of them.
11: Man. So just uh, the regular Roundup that you find on the store shelf?
2: Yeah, the regular one. You don't need the one for woody plant material that kills poison ivy and, you know, honeysuckle and all that other stuff. So, And just make sure that the the one you get, you know, I think it's in a two-gallon sprayer. I'm not exactly sure what size it is, but it has a plastic cone at the end, and so it, it keeps this Roundup going right down to where you put it. You know, you put the cone, and then you shoot the spray, you know, and— that's the best way probably to go about doing it.
11: Well, I think I used Roundup before and it killed the leaves, but man they came back and I was like, man, I guess I just wasn't persistent enough. You just got to stay on top of it.
2: Yeah, I mean, it's it's systemic, so it should go down through the leaves and down through the root system, but I mean it is like I said, it is probably one of the if not the worst weed as far as being able to control.
11: Mm, so you didn't give me any good news at all.
2: <laughs> well, or you could, you know. I mean, like my wife loves them, so she's, you know.
11: Yeah, <laughs> so, so is my grandson. He'll pick the pink flowers and give them. I mean, uh, the purple flowers right. and give them to my wife. And I'm like, get those things out of here before
2: you start <laughs> throwing them on the carpet. <laughs> No, but I mean, it, right. it's got a, it's got sort of a magical system as far as it's perennial, so it can spread by you know, with the root system. But also, it has two different ways of producing seed. One is down, kind of right at ground level, that you don't even see it. It kind of looks like a snake's head, only it's only about a half inch high. And then the other one's through the flowers, so it produces fly, you know seeds two different ways.
11: Man, and they do grow too. Yep. All right. Well, I sure appreciate the tip. I will uh, see if I can be more persistent come springtime.
2: Yeah, and just stay on top of it. And it it's probably going to, to be honest with you, an average yard is probably going to take multiple years to finally get them all, you know, get it. And you're never probably going to get it 100% under control. But to get it at least under control enough to where your, your grandson is not going to be able to find any flowers to pick. <laughs>
11: Well, yeah, I, I heard it was going to take uh, – it could take up to two, three years, four years. Right. Uh, all right. I appreciate your time, sir. I'll keep, I'll keep listening.
2: <laughs> Thank you. Thanks for having me on your show. And uh, anybody else? 314-436-7900 or 1-800-925-1120. Let's head over to O'Fallon, Illinois and go into Margie's yard. Hi, Margie. Hello. Hi.
0: Hi, I have two questions. One's about a fig tree and the is about peonies. So for my fig tree, it did really well this summer. Um, but I'm wondering, do I need to protect it over the winter?
2: Now, is this a hardy variety of fig, outside fig? Yes,
0: it's a Chicago tur- Chicago fig, oh. turkey, something like that. <laughs>
2: <laughs> a turkey. <laughs> a no. fig, Basically, yeah. they're pretty tough now. I don't know exactly okay. exposure wise, but there's quite a few figs that uh, in the hill neighborhood that people are growing in their backyard, and you know they're getting f- you know fig production out of them and everything else. So, yeah. they I don't see them doing anything unusual with them as far as wrapping them or anything. They do like a, the classic woody plant material, they do put uh you know a couple inches of compost and mulch around the base of them. But I don't see anything else beyond that.
0: Okay, okay, great.
2: And then, and then what, the other one was?
0: The, the peony, um, I planted it and it's in a place that's getting too much shade. Ooh. And I need to move it. Um, would it be okay to move it still or should I wait till spring or when is a good time to move that?
2: I would probably wait till spring. Okay. And definitely, you know, they want to be in full sun all day long every day. And even in that situation, you're still going to get fungus problems on the foliage and You know, some spotting on, and the best thing to do is once it finishes flowering, which you always know it's, you know, during May or early June, and just let the foliage stay as long as you you can handle it, and then once it really starts looking kind of rough, and it's been at least uh, probably all the way up until late August, early September, cut it off and remove the foliage completely, and that will help minimize. It won't eliminate. You know the fungus problems that get on the foliage and leaves.
0: Okay, should I move it like before it really starts growing in the spring?
2: No, I would probably because you're not exactly sure where it is. I wouldn't think exactly. So I did wait mark until it. you I start to see it. the you know the hand coming up out of the ground, and okay. then go a couple inches beyond that. Dig it up. Dig the whole root ball up. and You know, I'm one. Let's say, I don't want to say in one chunk, but uh, just get yeah. the, leave the root ball all connected, set it on top of the ground, and leave it for a day or two. And what oh, you're doing okay. is when you first dig it up, the root systems of the peonies are very brittle. And if you try to okay. move it and replant it, you may end up breaking a lot of the root system. If you just dig it up and set it someplace and leave it alone mm-hmm. for a day or two, then the root system uh-huh. will be much more supple and then it'll be able to acclimate to the new location much okay. better with minimal damage. Okay. Awesome. Thank you so much. Yep. Yeah, the peonies are great. But, boy, I mean, we spend a lot of time and energy on them for, you know, those flowers. They are spectacular, but, whoo, it's a lot of work. Now let's head over to Villa Ridge and see what's going on with Chris. Hi, Chris.
12: Hey, good morning, Mike. How are you doing today? Very good. Good. Hey, couple of things. Um, on the on the putting roundup onto like honeysuckle and that, what you said kind of prompted me to wonder can you like score the the um bark toward the bottom and get to the where the systemic stuff will go down as opposed to having to cut it off like that guy he could just cut around the that part deep enough and then put it in there and it might retain?
2: Yeah, I mean he could try that. It's you know, it's just a A question of the reason why I always say cut it off is just you get you get the you're exposing the veins right there when you virtually take the bark off anything all the way around it's you know it's Mm going to kill the above ground growth but it won't kill the root systems and so Uh, then you know right after you do that then go ahead you could try it I mean it could it's an experimental thing it's not something that I've really done myself or heard of being done but it might work
12: yeah okay. Um, The other question I had, I have a uh, black oak uh, or a black walnut uh, uh, grove of trees, Mm -hmm. and they were planted about 10 to 15 feet apart, and there's a ton of them. Yeah, I know. And so I have some that are probably 8 to 10-inch diameter, most of them on the perimeter, a few in the middle, and then a bunch of little 3s and 4-inch guys in there, and actually I've started cutting some of them down and using them for fence posts. What I was curious about is what distance should I try to to make them apart? And then the other part is um, what would I do as far as um, what size should I try to retain? What's the the smallest I should try to retain to kind of clean this thing up and make it grow better? Because the, the other thing that it prompted you earlier, you were talking about doing the drilling, and I'm heading to the the garden center to get a drill to put the mulch down once I do all this this winter so right. just kind of curious.
2: Uh basically you, you know how big walnut trees are when they're mature. I mean they're let's say their canopy is huge. So mm-hmm. I'm not saying you have to because you're having more or less an orchard of walnut trees. They don't have to be that far apart, but I would say any of them that are kind of in the interior part that don't look, you know, that are, and you have other ones that are outgrowing them, get rid of all the small ones entirely and just kind of do that first. And then later on, you can start looking up into the trees and see, well, these three trees, the two on the perimeter on the ends are much bigger, much broader, and they're squeezing the one in the center. Then ultimately you might take that one out.
13: Okay.
12: All right. I'll just uh, start taking out the scrawny ones first and go from there. Right, because
2: they're never going to do any good. And all they're doing, they're, I mean, they're still competing for nutrients and everything else with the larger trees. And you want the larger trees, which are going to be able to produce, you know, some walnuts for you to have as much of the nutrient value as they possibly can.
12: Hey, just one other question I just thought about. Should I go ahead and paint some woody roundup on the stumps after I cut them out to get them the... Root system
14: to
2: die quicker, I probably these the small ones are probably under stress anyway, so you could do that, but it might not be necessary okay, very good because they're competing all right, well, with
12: the, much for your health
2: uh, yeah, because they're competing with the other you know more mature trees, the root systems are all intertwined, and so basically, I would say you could do it with the roundup, but it may not be necessary. What you can do is just wait and if you start to see any kind of sucker growth come off where you've taken some of the trees out, then maybe put some Roundup on the sucker growth.
12: Okay, that makes sense. Perfect. All right. Well, thanks, have a
1: great Saturday.
2: You do the very same thing. Mike Miller, KMOX Garden Hotline, back after these messages.
1: Once again, Mike Miller on KMOX.
2: Yes, let's head to Morrow, Illinois, and go into Terry's yard. Hi, Terry. Good morning. Hi. Yeah, hey, I have two quick questions. Um, first of all, late
15: summer, I noticed that the, my maple trees had black ink spots on the uh, leaves. <clears throat> That's what much you be concerned about. And secondly, when should I tr- prune my uh, grapevines?
2: Grapevines, you can prune them virtually any time now. They finish their growth, so you can prune them going into wintertime, or you can wait until you know, we have some more, the warmer weather around Valentine's Day and prune them at that time. So either one of those. Okay. As far as the spotting on the maple, that could be physical, like a you know small hail could cause that bruise. But if it's a uh, you know it's it doesn't sound like a fungus or anything else like along that line, so I wouldn't be overly hmm. concerned with it.
15: Yeah, they were really dark black and look like ink blotches,
2: about yeah. maybe
15: a penny size.
2: Okay, yeah, right. I still well, think it's a you know it's a physical thing versus some kind of disease. Because it's not going to necessarily, if, if you've never seen them before and all of a sudden they just show up this year and there's a substantial amount. It, generally, diseases, bacteria, viruses, funguses, they sort of have a growing process. They don't just come all at once. I see. Okay, great. Thank you very much. Certainly, my pleasure. And now let's head from Morrow, Illinois, down to Arnold and see what's going on with Steve. Hi, Steve.
14: Hey, good morning, Mike. How are you? Very good. Good. Hey, I got a, some thoughts on a gentleman with a honeysuckle who's trying to get rid of the stuff on his tree line. Sure. Um, there's a, I know you're familiar, but there's a process that, that we use for trees for thinning them out during logging operations called girdling. And that's where, you, like you were saying, you just basically take the, uh, a saw or something around the entire circumference and right. near the base or on a tree, you'd go higher. But basically just get through that outer bark and into the cambrium, the vasculature, and you get in there just enough to get cut through that into a little bit of the wood that basically cuts off the circulation and eventually that will uh, cause it to die. That's one way you can do it. Also the gentleman with the walnut trees. But um, if you're trying to get some trees out, the Department of Conservation has a process they call hack and squirt, where you basically take like a small hatchet or a roofing uh, hammer, if you will, and you hack into the uh, bark of the tree and you open up a pocket. So You you hack in about a 45 degree angle or a, a machete or whatever, and you open up a pocket and for every one-inch diameter of that tree or sapling, you put one ounce of herbicide in there.
2: Ah, so you great.
3: Create,
14: you, create, you create that pocket, and then it, it holds that herbicide in there. And it's pretty remarkable that within you know a year or the next growing season, you can really tell a difference. So if you've got a four-inch diameter tree, obviously you put four hacks in it, open up four pockets, four ounces of the herbicide, and it holds it in there. And then because it's sucking all the stuff back down into the roots of the fall, the next spring it'll look kind of funky and kind of dormant. That within a year or so, it'll actually die. So that's just a process you can try.
2: Yeah, that sounds great. And just make sure that you have a systemic type of you know, herbicide because you want to kill the root system too.
14: Yes, sir. Uh, they have a pretty heavy-duty stuff from Department of Conservation. It's called Arsenal. Uh, it, it's rather expensive, but it definitely does the job, and that's what they do on the public land. So it's, uh, I found that to be a good practice.
2: Great. Well, thanks for the insight. And Alice, uh, Pat, can you do it kind of quickly? Pat from Kirkwood. Yes,
4: leaving my fall clematis and your uh, rose of Sharon for seeds for the birds and squirrels to eat through the uh, winter time is a fun thing to do. As uh, you know, cold and dreary days, you sit and watch them eat these things. So they're a good food source. I found great, great.
2: It's right. Thank you. <laughs> Certainly. Yeah. I mean, the birds having something for them to eat. I mean, whether you you could have plant material like you know hollies or something along that line, or even as horrible as this sounds, uh, honeysuckles. You know, they love the honeysuckle berry, or even something like junipers. Junipers with the blue cones, blueberries. They love those as well. So anything around that you can have some kind of fruit for them and you can invite them into your yard, that's exactly what it's all about. So that's a great, you know, great insight. Now, the clematis, I didn't know that, you know, I'm not, you know, I've only grown a few varieties of the clematis, and I've not noticed that the bird's coming to them as much. And I don't do any kind of pruning at that time when I had them. I didn't do any pruning on the clematis at all. So, but I, you know, maybe it's just because I had other things that they enjoyed more so or whatever it happens to be. So, what variety of clematis are you, do you have it's one still specific? Fall,
4: our fall winter one. And um, it's just to where the cardinals, especially, will sit on top of it and eat those seeds.
2: All right. So well, that's great. Really,
4: really a fun thing to do through. The uh, winter. See. And it's just, you know, then trim all those things in, in March.
2: Right, exactly. And
4: you've fed the birds and squirrels and things. It's been <laughs> a fun thing to do.
2: Right. Well, that sounds and perfect.
4: Pokeberries. Pokeberries are another thing if you can leave those till right. March. And then the pokeberries, especially, will come up real easy after you. Uh, uh, you know, after the winter, then you just go out and pull them up.
2: Right. And right now we have the three sugar maples that are, you know, wrapping around our because you know, we're on a corner. And the, a lot of the birds, like, you know, the sugar maples, let's say they're whirly birds, are really small mm-hmm. and they're really dense. And the birds are, you know, constantly flying up there and actually eating those as well as the squirrels yeah. getting up there, too. So mm-hmm. there's all kinds of things in nature that you can invite you know, other parts of nature into your own landscape. So thanks a lot, Pat, for the Thank insight you. there on that. So Mike Miller, KMOX Garden Hotline. We will be back after the news by Brian Kelly.
1: KMOX and your service. Welcome to the St. Louis Composting Garden Hotline. Now, Mike Miller on KMOX.
2: Yes, folks, welcome to the Garden Hotline, tip of the trowel hour, and I'll be giving you the tip of the trowel shortly, but right now you can call 314-436-7900 or 1-800-925-1120. Questions, ideas, comments, concerns. And, Mr. Kelly, we were talking about bib overalls last night. Yeah, bib overalls. And I didn't know if you ordered some online. I and- was looking.
3: I'm looking. I'm waiting for the big sale. Yeah, they're not on sale yet. I'm sure around Christmas, the, yeah, the bib overalls will be on sale. And uh, Black Friday, yeah, is Cole well, suggestion. True. Yeah, I'll wait for that and make sure to get some, and I'll get a picture of me in them and send them to you. Sounds send the picture perfect. to you. Yes. <laughs> Great. So, thanks, thanks for the idea. That's, that's
2: terrific. Yes, folks, and thanks to you for having me on your show, where we're here to discuss plant selection, caring for ups and downs and all arounds to your annuals. Annuals, woo wee That cold spell we had a couple weeks ago, that kind of did some damage to even the very tough annuals, like the hardy kales and pansies and things like that. I haven't seen too many that are, you know, Looking all that well. How about those bulbs? You get your tulips and daffodils and crocus and grape hyacinths and hyacinths planted. Your edibles. The edibles. Stay away from that romaine lettuce, especially if it's from California. Well, you're not going to grow California lettuce here, so you don't have to worry about it. And uh, how about ground covers, houseplants, lawn, perennials, roses, trees, shrubs, vines, and water gardens? I'll share my thoughts, but please remember my answers, comments, and opinions is certainly not the only garden path to take, but offered to you as just a way to maybe consider. So uh, across the big board right now is Cole. Cole's taking your your calls. All he needs is your name and your numb. No, no, where you're calling from, that's what he needs. And Alex is usually producing the show, but him and Emily, his wife, are having their fifth anniversary today. So they're partying on, or what? I don't know exactly what they're doing. Anyway, during the week, I spend time doing landscape consulting, which I call a walk and talk. You can contact me, go into my website, MikeMillerDesigns.com, the home page. That's where my email address and phone number are listed. So you schedule a walk and talk. Also, you can give a walk and talk gift certificate for somebody that, uh, you know, where I would come to their home. They can the, actually date, time and everything else can be determined later on. I just email the actual gift certificate and we go from there tip of the trowel is a special recognition for individual, group, or a situation that's made an impression on me and is brought to you by St. Louis Composting, 636-861-3344. The tip of the trowel today goes out to the National Wildlife Federation. The National Wildlife Federation, they sent an email out, and because Thanksgiving, and Happy Thanksgiving to everybody, you know, coming up in only a few days, uh, was related to fascinating turkey facts, Turkeys likely wasn't on the menu at the first Thanksgiving. While wild turkeys were plentiful in New England at that time, historical accounts don't mention it specifically as one of the foods served at the very earliest Thanksgiving celebrations. Wild turkeys were first domesticated by Native Americans in Mexico, and the Spanish conquistadors actually took the turkeys, the native wild turkeys, back to Europe. Wild turkey is one of only two American species that's been domesticated. The other is the Muscovy duck. The Muscovy duck, what they are, which there's some Muscovy ducks, which I didn't know what they were, at the St. Louis Zoo. But they just like the male turkey, the, the male Muscovy duck has a waddle. And when I read this thing, I thought, "Waddle? You mean that's how they walk?" No, it's W A T T L E. That's that thing that hangs out over their nose. So you can totally wild and crazy. And, uh, and guess what? The wild turkeys can fly up to fifty-five miles an hour, and they can run at twenty-five miles an hour. So that's just totally wild and crazy. And uh, the Wild turkeys are the second largest wild bird in North America, second only to the trumpeter swans. So, and also you can produce or you can support local wild turkey populations by planting native trees, shrubs, and wildflowers that pr- you know, provide nuts, berries, seeds, and insects for the turkeys to feed upon. So, again, this was information emailed to me from the National Wildlife Federation about uh, turkeys since Thanksgiving's coming up in a few days. I thought that would certainly work very well. So why don't we take a call or two before we take a break? Let's go to Debbie, and she is in Edwardsville. Hi, Debbie. Hey,
15: Mike. How are you? Very good. Happy Thanksgiving to you, by the way. The same to you. Um, thanks. I just had a, a comment on the guy that called from Moro about his maple trees and those black spots there on his leaves.
5: Mm-hmm.
15: Um, I've had the same thing, and I think what it is, it is a fungus, and it's called tar spot. And it is just kind of comes late in the summer, late you know, early in the fall, and you don't notice it before that. But it's pretty much just aesthetic, and it doesn't do any damage. But it is, I mean, it's very black and pretty entire circular. circular. It doesn't, you know, it's not uh, fringed or anything like that. So um, I think that's
2: what's called tar spot. Well, great. Well, thanks for the insight because I was thinking it was only something physical. So tar spot. Yeah, I think it's a fungus. Yes. Well, great. Well, thanks. I greatly appreciate it. That's why, you know, listeners are very, very important. And thanks for having me on your show, Debbie.
5: Thank you. Bye-bye.
2: Now let's go to Glenn, and he lives in the city of St. Louis. Hi, Glenn.
5: Hey, Mike. Uh, great show, as always. Would, would you discuss with your listeners the proper way to uh, apply mulch in maybe the spring and the fall especially if you have some ground covers or if you have some seeds like Mexican milkweed that are going to be dropping and you hope to have them germinate next spring, the best way and maybe uh, when to apply spring
2: and fall mulch. Basically, what you want to do is a lot of time, many times if we're having self-seeding you know, plant material like you're talking about, you're probably better off not to put any mulch down at all. But if you're going to put some mulch down, not more than one inch, and it's got to be well-composted because if it's not, it can really interrupt the whole germination process. And what you need to do, if you are going to put mulch down over ground covers or whatever it happens to be, you're better off to water the area first unless there's been some recent rain because even well-composted material that you would be putting down can absorb some of the moisture from the surface, and could. it's probably not going to cause a problem but that's just one of the you know one of the concerns that you you know that you need to be thinking about. Herbaceous plant materials like peonies and things along that line. Uh, iris, one to two inches of mulch, you know, is the most that you want around. Whether they're comb flowers or anything else, doesn't matter. One to two inches the most is one to two inches deep is the most. And then also around woody plant material, keep the mulch away from the base of the trunk where the trunk or the stems are going into the ground, and three to four inches of mulch is the maximum for those situations.
5: Would you pl- would you apply it in the spring and fall? Would you uh, recommend that?
2: Only if it's needed. So, in other words, you want one to two inches on the perennials, and so if when fall comes around you still have an inch there, then, you know, Don't put any more mulch down. A lot of times, people use mulch for an aesthetic standpoint more so than beneficial to the plant material.
5: Okay, on your hostas, would you cut back all the foliage before applying the mulch, or just apply it over?
2: I probably. I cut. I've already cut my hosta, and what I, you know, with my, I, I just put some mulch around them. You know, so I don't really kind of care. You know, either way, you can do it. And when I worked in the woodland garden, at the botanical garden, I cut the foliage down on the hostas, and then I spent most of the wintertime mulching the entire woodland garden with leaf mold. That's what they used, you know, when I was working there.
5: Very good. Well, thanks a lot for the advice.
2: Well, great. Well, thanks for calling. And let's see. Cool. Let's take one more call before we take a break. Let's go to Mike in Oakville. Hi, Mike.
3: Oh, Hi. oh are you still there? Yes. You still there?
0: Hey, I'm sorry, Mike. Hey, enjoy your show. Hey, real quick, what's your thoughts on feeding birds, this, um, you know, through the winter? Um, any any
2: thoughts on that? I love it. I used to do it a lot. I used to do it a lot. I feed thistle seed for the doves and for the finches and things like that. But to be honest with you, I've had to stop feeding the birds because we've got feral cats in the neighborhood and of course, where you feed the birds, the cats are gonna be drawn to that. And it was driving me nuts. I was having to run outside and chase the cats away way, way too much. So now I just hope that whatever plant material that I have around or that's growing around, the birds, like I said, with the sugar maple, they eating, you know, the, the maple seeds and things along that line as as opposed to me putting out bird seed. When I lived in Soulard, we didn't have a problem with the feral cats at all. And what I did there is I just sprinkled the bird seed on the ground, on the sidewalks and things like that. And uh, the birds, you know, they loved it.
6: Uh, Do you ever use the beef suet for, you
8: know, the the beef fat with uh, seed
2: in it? Uh, I didn't. I've not used it. I've been strictly a seed type person, but that's just my own personal choice.
8: Okay. Thanks, Mike. As always, enjoy listening to you,
2: buddy. Well, great. Well, thanks for having me on your show. Mike Miller, KMOS Garden Hotline, back after these messages. Yes, folks, if you have questions, concerns, or comments, 314-436-7900 or 1-800-925-1120. Have you put your garden hose away yet? Well, maybe. If you haven't, go out there and just check your ground to see how dry it is, and you may want to still water some of the plant material because... I don't know, this weather's been so screwy, there is going to be a time when we start having some harsh cold weather and then if your soil is dry, what it does is it shrinks as it dries and then that exposes air pockets around the feeder roots, which are the essential root system or part of the root system for your plant material. And then the cold air sinks down into there and could do some damage to your feeder roots. Another thing to think about, too, we've had a couple or three, four questions related to lawn and leaves. And here's another one, Uh, a little comment, uh, you know, research-wise. Leaves on the lawn or any garden space block sunlight. So, in other words, if you've got some leaves thicker or deeper than one inch over your lawn, even if your lawn is dormant like zoysia, Definitely, if it's, you know, actively growing like the cool season lawns, like the bluegrasses and fescues, it blocks that sunlight. Additionally, it can smother suffocate by causing problems related to evaporating moisture from the soil up into the air. And this could cause, in other words, it creates, I don't want to say like a plastic bag, but it holds some moisture on the ground. And then that can cause some fungus problems. Now, fungus problems in the wintertime are not deadly, but what they do, they can weaken the plant material. So that's, you know, it can cause some patchy spots and things like that in your lawn. So that's one of the reasons why you want to keep up with, you know, getting rid of the you know, leaves, whether you mulch them with your mulching mower or anything else. You don't want them to get more than one inch deep because it can cause some problems. Let's go now to Milstat and into Eric's yard. Hi, Eric.
5: Oh, hi, Mike. How are you doing? Thanks for taking my call. Sure. I've got a, a question. I called about three or four weeks ago because I was considering putting some sod down, and you said, oh, it might be sort of on the edge of when you should be putting this down. Well, anyway, I put it down, and I put mixed it up with some dirt and some compost and got the sod down. And the sod still looks nice and green, but it's not really adhering to the soil surface. And I was wondering, do you think it it's gonna be okay or do you think I should do anything to help that out?
2: There's nothing you can really do to be honest with you. So in other words the roots have not started to penetrate into the ground and if they don't and we get some really harsh cold weather, it could kill the sod. That's why you know my recommendation at that time is is kind of a roll of the dice. So in other words, just yep. continue to go out, you know, every few days or you know once a week or so Now it's fine, and, uh, you know, just kind of pick up one corner of one piece and see if you're starting to get, you know, the root system to penetrate into the ground. If it doesn't, then it's going to be very, very iffy.
5: Do you think it's good to put any water extra on it? Uh, One person told me they probably shouldn't put much water on it anymore.
2: Uh, Probably, if you're not, if we have extended periods of dry or drought, where, you know, we go a week to 10 days and there hasn't been any rainfall at all, I would water, but I wouldn't just routinely water it because the watering is not necessarily going to help the root systems. So in other words, the roots have to be sort of triggered the growth by the blades, and the blades have to, you know, the sunlight and everything else. So that's what, you know, makes food, and then that shares the food that it's making, you know, with the root system and the other parts of the plant material. But... Uh, so there's really not too much you can do.
5: Okay, so just if it stays green, that's kind of a good sign. But yes, uh, if it if it doesn't work, I guess it'll just start to dry out come March and April.
2: Yeah, you'll notice that uh, it'll start discoloring and not look good.
5: Okay, thanks for the call.
2: Sure, I greatly appreciate you having me on your show. Three one four four three six seven nine hundred or one eight hundred nine two five eleven twenty. Uh, Barb lives in Fairview Heights. Hi, Barb.
16: Good morning. Hi. I have I have a Christmas cactus that over the last it's either four or five years old. I have maybe had oh maybe a dozen blooms. It just does not bloom at Christmas time. I purchase it doesn't bloom. Uh, I purchased it from a fundraiser. Um, you know they were selling poinsettias, Christmas cactuses. And a friend of mine purchased one of the Christmas cactuses also. Hers is beautiful every year. Mine is not. Is there something I could do to, you know, maybe get the cactus to bloom?
2: It's going to be a little bit tough, but uh, hopefully you have not put it into a bigger pot. So in other words, they want to be pot bound. That's the best thing you can do. And then I would probably go to your favorite garden center and get some fertilizer for cactus and whatever amount it says to water, you know, slash fertilizer with, do about half that label rate. And uh, that's about the only thing you're going to be able to do. And it's just like certain people, you know, I've got brothers and sisters that have different, you know, different this, different that, different height. And so you just happen to get a bad one. And I'm assuming you have it in full sun, right? I do. Okay. Yes.
15: It gets, uh, it,
16: it's in the afternoon afternoon. Uh, you know, like noon to, you know, late at night whenever the sun goes down.
2: Well, that's, you know, right now the sun's going down. Sunished at, sunished. Yeah, right now the sun's going down about 444 or 445 or something like that. So consequently, it's only getting four hours of sun. So even though it's in the tropics, you know, they grow, you know, underneath the shade of other things when we sort of bring something out of the tropics and try to turn it into a house plant, it needs more sun. So you might consider getting a grow light and putting a grow light over the top of it. How does the foliage look? Does the foliage look okay?
0: Oh,
16: it is a, it's a very attractive plant. So in other
2: words, then it might just be related to the fertilizing, but I would certainly try to get as much light onto it as you possibly can.
16: But I did replant it about, I would say, probably two years ago because it was getting very, very large. I mean, it's doubled in size, at least doubled in size from whenever I purchased it. But I should have left it in the same pot.
2: Yeah, they really want to be pot bound. A lot of times we end up potting stuff up into a bigger pot, and it really is to the disadvantage of the plant. Okay, okay.
16: All right, I'll try the uh, fertilizer and uh, see if that um, helps with you know, maybe getting a few blooms. Is right.
2: <laughs> yeah, good luck with that. Yeah, and a lot of times people say, well, if I leave it in that small pot, it becomes so top-heavy because it's gotten so large. Well, what you can do is just leave it in that pot with that potting mix that it's growing in, but just get a more decorative pot and just set it down into a decorative pot so that you don't have to worry about the thing being top-heavy.
16: And I've actually done that. I put it into a uh, a basket you know that I purchased whenever right. I was on vacation. It fits very nicely, you know, down into this basket. Right. and um, so that's what I have it in. I did not repot it from there, but it it is coming out over the basket now. Perfect. So okay, I'll just I'll just leave it where it's at, and I'll try the fertilizer and. You know, I'll let you know if I get a bloom.
2: Okay, that sounds great. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. Yes, 314-436-7900 or 1-800-925-1120. This is a time of year where if you live in an area where deer become problematic, here I'm going to give you a list of some of the plants that deer do not necessarily like. Now, if they're desperate, they're probably going to go after, you know, some of these. But from an annual standpoint, the deer don't like anything that has a fuzzy, you know, kind of leaf, annual or perennial. But uh, some of the annuals the deer usually do not graze on are like marigolds, lantana, globe amaranthus, cleome, and snapdragons. Some of the bulbs they don't like are like chorus. They don't like the onions, the alliums, the crocus snowdrops, cilia's, hyacinths, grape hyacinths, and fertilarias, as well as daffodils. So if you have deer problems and you're thinking about trying to grow some things that, you know, again, if they're desperate, they're going to eat anything as much as they possibly can or stay away from it. But if they are desperate, they're going to eat it. But uh, for the most part, those bulbs and those annuals are things that they kind of stay away from. Perennial and ground cover standpoint, they don't like the sedums. They don't like the vinca minor. They don't like the creeping flocks. You know, all those are just a little bit oddball and things like that. Vinca minor, I'm really surprised. It is evergreen. So why they don't like that one, I'm not exactly sure. But uh, if you do have any questions or concerns, 314-436-7900 or 1-800-925-1120. Back after these messages. As folks, if you have any questions, concerns, or comments, 314 436 7900 or 1 800 925 1120. We've got some phone lines open, so give us a call. Uh, in your own landscape, this is a time when you, a year when the temperature is not really all that bad. So it's a good time to get out there and get cleaned up as far as beyond just the fallen leaves and things like that. Today after the show, uh, my the, the my yard right now is not really too bad, but I like to just kind of keep up with it. The, last week, I was out uh, raking and bagging. I do actually have a mulching mower, and I run the mulching mower over the leaves, but then they end up in a bag. And then so consequently, I dump the bag from the mower into the plastic bag, and then I carry that bag down to the yard waste dumpster, which is in the alley. But a gentleman was driving by, and he said— Why do you bother raking the leaves? Look at those trees. There's still a huge amount of leaves on the trees. But I have to kind of keep up with it because there is so many leaves because we live across the street from Christie Park and the prevailing winds blow the leaves from the park into our yard. I end up with having to bag a huge amount of leaves. Last, let's see, I guess it was last Saturday when I was out, I ended up uh, filling five 55-gallon You know (laughs) plastic bags with yard waste and so that was without the whole without all the leaves coming in from you know across the street from christie park so let's head over to kathy's yard kathy how are you today
15: hey i'm doing great great okay my question is i dug up irises this fall and put them in crates milk crates so they get a lot of ventilation and I've left them outside, so it's, you know, we've had freezing weather. Are they toast? Do I need to throw them away, or can I clean them off and put them in an outdoor refrigerator?
2: So now is this uh, the tuberous, the, the classic yes. type flag ro- uh, irises? Correct. Okay. So what you can do is you can just go out and take a look at them. If you squeeze them and they still feel firm, they should be fine. If they feel mushy or soft, then uh, they probably just give them a toss.
15: Okay, and then what should I do within the rest of the winter?
2: Uh, Basically, you shake all the soil off of them, just put them in a paper bag, and bring them inside and put them in your basement. Perfect. Okay, that's what I'll do then. Thank you so much. Sure, that's what I'm actually going to be doing with my cannas, elephant ears. I have so many cannas of one particular type, I'm going to probably not do it with all of them, but some of them I have that are kind of the designer-type cannas. (laughs) So I've got those all dug up. They're sitting in the garage right now. I've cleaned them all off as far as the soil and everything, potting mix or whatever, wherever they had me growing. And then I've got them in a cardboard box, and I'm going to bring and just store them into the basement. So there's, uh, you know, and all that, those are the, any kind of the, let's say, iris are not, let's say, tropical like the bulbs I'm talking about. But uh, they're very tough. They're very durable and quite easy to care for, so. If you have questions or concerns, 314-436-7900 or 1-800-925-1120. Just realize that uh, irrigation or watering is very important, but overwatering can cause real problems as well. So, in other words, that's a drowning factor. So just keep that in mind when you're going to be doing anything in the outdoors. A lot of times we think like the, you know, it, it hasn't rained for a little while or the rain today earlier this morning, was that enough rain to actually know if it's actually watered your ground enough for the plant material, just go out and just take a shovel or a spade or a fork or something. Um, and just push it into the ground and see how much moisture there actually is there. So let's go to Ken and Ken is from South St. Louis. Hi, Ken.
7: Hey, Mike. Um, uh, love your program. And, uh, I'd like to ask you about uh, elephant ear bulbs. I, I was given a bunch of uh, elephant ear bulbs uh, last spring, mm-hmm. and uh, I planted them in some huge pots in, in uh, potting mix. Right. And they did, they did great. Uh, they had nice big leaves on them and everything. Well, I was uh, digging them out of the pot, to trying to take them out of the pots, and uh, uh, when, I, uh, when I dug them up, there was no bulbs this fall uh there's nothing but the plants and in uh, and big roots uh, going down into the into the soil but uh, but no bulbs uh, what uh, are those still salvageable? Can I grow them next year or what what should I do with them? I was gonna put the the bulbs in paper bags, but yeah uh,
2: they should be fine. Just cut the foliage off of them so if it doesn't have the classic bulb. You know, let's say when you purchase or buy, it's just the growth process and everything else. They're not from a production nursery, and that's where the ones that you see for sale, um, you know, that's why they look so big and tuberous. Some of them are like as big as a pineapple. But you should be fine. Just, uh, you know, cut off the the top. Don't leave maybe one or two inches at the most, probably an inch of the stems where the foliage was, and just put them in paper bags, and you'll be great. They'll work out fine for you.
7: Okay, real good. Thank you. Certainly. So, so they are salvageable.
2: <laughs> yes, <laughs> as long as they grew all summer long, they're okay.
7: Okay, real good. Thank you.
2: Certainly. And now let's go to Kathy, and Kathy lives in Baldwin. Hi, Kathy. Hi, Mike. I have two questions.
15: I have a Chinese dogwood, and it's it's living. It's it's about seven feet, but the whole trunk has completely sh- shredded like like a sycamore tree. Is that typical?
2: You mean it's got texture or the bark has actually fallen off?
15: The bark has come off of the Chinese
2: dogwood. Whoa. And it's kind
15: of peeled off in spots.
2: If it's just, Um, you know, it could be when a tree, actually the diameter of the tree increases, it sloughs off the old bark and the new bark actually pushes out mm -hmm. from behind. But if it's fallen off all the way around, that's not a good sign. Oh,
15: Okay. It's not dead, but I just thought—is that typical for the Chinese
2: dogwood? Well, okay, every tree, it. every tree that grows, that's how it actually grows. In other words, yeah. increases the caliper.
15: Okay, maybe that's the problem. Uh huh. Oh, so that's the good thing, right? And then, how short should I gra- I leave my grass for the winter when I collect, collect the leaves, you know, and mulch them. I'm cutting the grass essentially too. So, how? short should the grass be
2: should it left, be left longer i uh, know not too long but so do you have like a cool season lawn of fescue or bluegrass oh uh, it's a bluegrass yeah yeah so probably like three to three and a half inches should be adequate
15: okay three to three and a half
2: inches right. okay great very good thank you very much yeah if you let it go too long what it does is when we have rain and moisture or whatever it happens to be from sleet or snow or anything else what it does is mat down, and that creates the fungus problems. And, again, winter funguses do not kill, but they do weaken the plant material. So that's then, you know, weaken the plant material, meaning your lawn. So then when spring mm-hmm. comes around and the really the dangerous fungus and problems and things along that line start mm-hmm. erupting, it's already weakened, and then it's a disaster. Mm-hmm. So set the more. Wheels like midway, just in the middle. Right, exactly. Okay. Very good. Will do. Thank you so much. Yeah, my pleasure. And anybody else? 314-436-7900 or 1-800-925-1120. Let's go over to Connie's yard. Connie is from Fairview Heights. Hi, Connie.
10: Hi, Mike. I've got some additional information for a couple of the calls you've gotten today. Okay. Um, The first one is the lady that had the problem with the Christmas cactus. Mm Mm-hmm. Well, i found that they really need to be almost like a poinsettia is growing. They really need that 12 hours of darkness. What I do with mine is I, it stays outside all summer. Right. And when the weather starts getting cool in the fall, about the time to bring it in, I've found that it's already set buds. So I just bring it into my house in a cool spot, bright window, cool spot, until right. those buds develop and start opening. And they, it works beautifully. Right. Um, and another thing, you were just talking about the kusa dogwood. Mm-hmm. I have several of them, and that's part of their growth pattern. They get um, the bark just kind of peels in spots, so it's kind of almost like a leopardy print on the bark. It's real shallow; it's not deep um, things. But that's part of their ornamental value is to have that kind of leopardy mottled appearance to their trunks as they mature.
2: Well, great. Yeah, that's why I figured the way she was describing it just sounded like the, sort of the increase in the diameter of the actual trunk. The trunk count. Yeah, they,
10: kinda, they almost peel a little bit, almost like a uh, river birch. Right. You know how the river birch will peel? It's kind of almost the same thing, but it's more of a mottled leopard print-looking pattern going on.
2: Well, that's great. Well, thanks for the insight.
10: You're welcome. I enjoy your show. Thank well, you.
2: Well, great. Well, thanks for having me on your show. Mike Miller, KMOX Garden Hotline. If you have any questions, concerns, or comments, 314-436-7900 or 1-800-925-1120.
1: Welcome back to the St. Louis Composting Garden Hotline. Once again, Mike Miller on KMOX.
2: Yes, folks, you know the Botanical Garden has all kinds of different uh, events going on for this time of year. But on December 22nd, they have the Hanukkah. Festival of lights, that's from twelve to noon to four o'clock, and a traditional holiday separation. And then also on December 30th, they have the Kwanzi Festival of First Fruits. So that's from 12 to 4 as well. So there's besides a the Garden Hotline Gardenland Express and everything else that goes on, the tours of the, you know, the Victorian House, the Tower Grove House. The botanical garden is, and then of course the lights at night, where there's over a million lights spread out across the botanical garden, is. We are so lucky to have that organization here in our in our metropolitan area. I go to whenever Tracy and I travel. We always go to the botanical garden, and there's really hardly any places that compare with the one that we have here. So we are extremely lucky. Let's head over to Godfrey, Illinois, and see what's going on with Mike. Hi, Mike. Hey
13: there, uh, Mike. Thanks for your show. Uh, I have a really bad problem with moles, and I just want any advice you can give to get rid of these things.
2: (laughs) Basically, you have a nice yard, let's put it that way, or else the moles wouldn't be there. Moles, their main diet is earthworms. So you could either let your yard go to heck, and then the moles will move on to somebody else's yard that has a better yard, or what you can do is really, I mean, there's lots of different things. I've had people call in and say it's very cruel for me to, you know, to say, but using the traps is the best thing you can possibly do. There's a couple different kinds of traps, and uh, there's one that chokes them, and there's one that just spears them. But uh, several traps along the tunnels that have popped up recently, so in other words, within one day, then set the traps there. If you don't get a mole during that day, then guess what? You're going to have to move them to another, you know, pop new pop up area. But that's okay, pretty so much they, the only way. Yeah,
13: those traps can't just sit there for days and days. If they no. don't come up after a day, they've moved on.
2: Right, exactly. They're, you know, they're. So in other words, they've already more or less, from their own the mole's perspective, eaten all the earthworms that are along that trail. Okay. And so then they don't bother going back in that direction again.
13: Okay, I've been doing that so I guess I'll just keep after it. They're just they don't make trails so much as they make a mound and then yeah, I don't know where to put the trap.
2: Yeah, exactly. So just watch out watch out for the ones that pop up and then set the traps on the ones that have popped up. And the, the you know, the worst part of moles are they have two separate tunnels. The one that's a surface tunnel, that's the one that's the more or less a buffet line. Then they have a tunnel that's about a, you know, six or eight or ten inches or twelve inches deeper than that. That's a tunnel that they use to go back to their den where they sleep. So that's yeah. that's the one where you wonder why are these piles of dirt in my yard. Well, it's because yeah. they're pushing it up out of the ground because they can't lift it up like they can on the buffet lines.
13: Is their den likely to be like under a tree or something?
2: Not necessarily. You know, so it's okay. it's not like ground hornets that are always underneath shrubs or something like that. It's wherever they choose. Who knows why they've chosen that particular spot?
13: And does flooding do anything? If I put a hose in their tunnel, does that discourage them or make them go away? Well, it's you know, into the ground. It,
2: basically, it just goes back down in the ground. Now there's okay. a you know there's been people through the years that have said, I just sit out in the yard on a lawn chair and watch for the pop the tunnels to pop up and I have a shovel in my hand and i just drive it into the ground and pop those moles up out of the ground and then you know chop yeah. them up and then if you do start getting a bunch of moles back in the 1800s they used to sell fur coats made out of mole fur
13: yeah oh I don't think I'll go that far but uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh thanks thanks very much that's, that's a I guess I'll just keep being persistent.
2: Yeah, you can. There's nothing else you can do. Like I said, you have a nice yard or else they wouldn't be there because they're going after the earthworms. Earthworms only live in nice yards.
13: Yeah. Okay. Thanks for your help.
2: Yep. And now let's go over to Redbelt, Illinois from Godfrey and see what's going on with Charlie. Hi, Charlie.
6: Hi, Mike. Hi. Quick question for you. Uh, I have a cool season grass, mostly bluegrass and fescue. I was wondering if it's too late to put a winterizer on now.
2: Uh, it all depends. You know, you just have to be very careful about putting winterizers. Sometimes, if the first number is pretty high, then you could cause some real problems, you know, for for your lawn. So it's you know, with the not knowing what the weather is. Normally, you know, it should be okay. But uh, if the first number is above like low twenties, I would say don't do it.
13: Okay,
6: well, that's I try to do that anyway, even during the spring. I don't put a high nitrogen. on if I right. can help it, but try not to. Okay. Thanks a lot. Thanks for your show. Well,
2: Enjoy thank it. you. And thanks for having me on your show. Also right. using uh, for fertilizer, all fertilizers are not created equal. So things like triple 10 or triple, triple 12 were formulated for one season's growth, like for corn or agricultural products or things like that. Those are the ones that you did not want to use on your lawn or any kind of perennial plants. From Redbud, let's go over to St. Charles and see what's going on with Jim. Hi, Jim.
14: Hi, good morning, sir. I've got uh, three arborvitae I planted about a year and a half ago. They're doing really well. Mm -hmm. So I'd like to move them uh, away from the fence and spread them out a bit. Planned on doing it earlier this season, but uh, time got away from me. Uh, I may be able to do it tomorrow, but if not, it's going to be about two weeks from now before I can do it. I'm just curious, is that too late to to move the bushes, dig them up and move them?
2: Yeah, you're just taking a really big chance because even if you're really careful and get a huge root ball and everything else, when you dig up something, you're going to disrupt, the, the, let's say, the feeder roots. And then consequently, when you move it to a new location, it doesn't have that feeder roots to uptake moisture. And so then in the wintertime, we have a really bad winter and it's not getting moisture up through the root system. Then you could see some winter damage to it. So that would be the only concern that I might have. If you can, I would probably wait until we come out of the worst part of wintertime, so sometime towards the end of January, early February, and do it at that time. If these were already okay. grown, like at a nursery or something, then I would say there's no problem at all because the root systems are there. They're going to be intact. But when you dig up something, you're tearing up and doing some damage, as, even regardless of how careful you want to be.
14: Okay. So I can do it late winter. I don't have to wait till next fall,
2: for example. Right. Exactly. Oh, thank you so much. Thank you. And, yeah, when anybody that's going to transplant anything, just make sure, regardless of the season you're going to do it, regardless of the type of plant material, that you water the plant material first because that's going to minimize the amount of damage there is going to be to the root system. And there's no way getting around it that you know, that you're not going to have some kind of damage, regardless of how careful you are. And I know you say, well, if I I water the plant material, then that's going to make it really heavy and it's going to make it really difficult to, you know, to lift up out of the ground, to put it in a new location. But what you could do this time of year is just go ahead and get the spot, you know, determine where you want to have the spot and everything else, get that area kind of the soil worked up. So, you can, it'll be a little bit easier next, you know, whenever you decide to go ahead and move them. So, thanks, Jim, for calling. I greatly appreciate it. And thanks to everybody else for calling. And uh, uh, it's been really kind of a a wild and crazy time as far as, uh, you know, this with the way the weather's been. I mean, it's just been unbelievable to think we were in the low teens or even like almost down to the single digits for real temperatures only, what, two weeks ago. And uh, if you didn't happen to be listening, you know, earlier on, Thanksgiving is coming up, obviously, that everybody realizes it. And this, again, is from the National Wildlife Federation. They sent me an email involved with some of the wild turkeys, wild turkey information. So wild turkeys are the second largest bird in North America, second only to the trumpeter geese. Ben Franklin, he preferred to uh, have the wild turkey for a national bird rather than a bald eagle. So, hmm. so Ben Franklin's kind of cool.